Let's pray. O Lord, give us grace to understand your word, to believe your word, to live out your word. Lord, to live honestly and wholly in front of you, before you, Lord. To lay hold of you in the darkest of times. Bless us, Lord, with the fresh, uh, glorious knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it for his glory and honor. Amen. As Brian asked the question, uh, I ask it again, you might ask why a lament during Christmas. Is it even appropriate to talk about lament during Christmas? I've had more than one person wonder why I would do this, why we would do this. But here's a question to ask you as well. Do problems and suffering suddenly disappear at Christmas? Um, do people who are facing their first Christmas without a spouse due to the death to death or a painful divorce, suddenly are they not alone at Christmas? Or is that even intensified? People with chronic pain, does it just disappear at Christmas? Not a time for lament at Christmas? I love that song, not really, but have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, troubles will be out of sight. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Through the years, we'll all be together if the fates allow. Hang a star upon the... Okay. Um, What dribble, you know? Like, yeah, not quite. Troubles are the same during and after Christmas. Nothing's going to change necessarily, it seems. So I would say this, lament is made for Christmas, (laughs) that it's most satisfied and fulfilled in the Christmas story, that it's pain and suffering come to relief and comfort and final deliverance in the Christmas story. There are other parallels, but we'll talk more about that later. First, as a further introduction... I just want to talk about the Psalms in general as we dive into the Psalms this this month. In the Psalms, you'll find this full, broad spectrum of human experience and struggle brought to the table of the full unveiling of God. And when that happens, often sparks fly. The cutting, sharpening, honing, searing work of God meets the expectation of man. Sometimes we're exhilarated, sometimes comforted, sometimes we feel whole and complete, and sometimes we're appalled and decimated and undone. Sometimes we soar, sometimes we crash and burn when we encounter this magnificent God. The Psalms are direct and they're intense, most of all honest. As Longman has said, this is a sanctuary. These Psalms are a sanctuary where God meets his people in a special way. It's interesting how the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was planted in the middle of the tents of Israel is called the meeting place. That means a meeting place with God. And so the Psalms are the tabernacle, the meeting place with God, like a literary tabernacle, a literary sanctuary. So 
interestingly, as the tabernacle was at the center and hub of everything Israel did, so here they, here the Psalms are, smack dab in the middle of the, of the Bible as a hub of the whole in worship. So, in the midst of worship is where we meet this glorious God. And that's what's so engaging about the Psalms. It's in the act of worship that He is revealed to us. So we meet God as they meet Him. We question God as they question Him. We cry to God as they cry to God. And we discover God and sometimes recover God as they do as well. It is in this dynamic encounter with God that we encounter Him and grapple with Him and are overjoyed with Him. It's an open invitation to explore the whole of the Rocky Mountain range of His glory, to enter into this world tour of God in the Psalms. And the interesting thing is that these are meant to be sung, right? Meant to be sung with full heart. So they draw us into this conversation and this wrestling and this rejoicing. Uh, recently at an uh, auction, uh, there was the offer to fly in an F-16. That would be something, wouldn't it? Yeah, probably throw up in the midst of it, but um, it would be amazing. That's, that's what the Psalms are. Get into the F-16. Come into the challenger. Explore. See the glory of God. This is truth revealed in the context of relationship. Theology written in intimate relationship with Him and close touch with everyday life and struggle. And also the Psalms are oriented toward our emotional life. S.G. Meyer says this, The Psalms allow the reader to express his inner life, to verbalize what he couldn't communicate, and to crystallize the nature and identity of his problem. Give you verbal uh, tools to even talk about your problem. He says, We feel ourselves understood and explained by the Psalms. So it's not only a discovery of God, but it's a discovery of yourself. And of course, as many of you know, this is what Calvin says, that the first of his institutes, that we must discover God and discover ourselves in tandem. And so this it's written in poetry that is so expressive. It's difficult to get at in some ways, but it speaks to our whole person, our imagination and emotions and intellect and our will. And so Calvin can say that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. You want to lay your soul out and get it analyzed? Go to the Psalms. It's an anatomy of the whole of your soul. Hubbard says the Psalms speak to all seasons of the soul. And another says this, not that joy and sorrow are both brought into this relationship with God. They're not brought into the relationship with God, they exist in relation to God. That is, your joy and your sorrow and your emotions in the Psalms, you realize these are all involved in this constant relationship that I have with Him. From living in His presence or feeling the absence of God or being on the pathway to Him or engaged with God. 
These psalms measure the sensitivity of God's people to His presence or His absence. They're wonderful in that respect. God always matters to them, whether He's there or not there. It always matters. It's like the princess in the pea, you know, all these mattresses, and she still can't sleep because the pea's underneath. And so the psalmist can have everything in the world. His life can be stacked with mattresses of comfort. But if God is not there, he can't live. He can't live. They are anything but indifferent. And so, as he goes on to say, Westerman, the psalms embrace these great contrasts in human life. In never-ending and yet ever-new ways, the psalms circle about this one center Human existence in its mighty, terrifying, and glorious rhythm of loss and rescue, cry for help and shout of exultation, capture and release, laughter and weeping. All of this, you see this whole uh, rhythm of human existence. And he says, even more profound and more comprehensive than all of these contrasts, are those of being near to God and far from God. That's the great rhythm of the Psalms. I'm near to you, I feel far from you. I'm near to you, I feel far from you. But all of life is about that. It's about our sensitivity and engagement of the presence of God in our lives. So Athanasius could say of the Psalms, it's the epitome of the whole of the Scripture, the essence of the whole of Scripture, this glorious, intimate relationship with God. Now, as to lament in particular, it's very interesting that personal lamentation, personal lament, is the most common form of the Psalms. Is that not interesting? In the book of worship, the most common psalm is one of personal lament. And that should encourage you that God is concerned to meet your needs when you struggle. He does want you to come and pour out your hearts before Him. He is vitally engaged with you in the midst of your pain and suffering. And he's given psalm after psalm after psalm to express that, for you to enter into, for it to engage you and help you pour your heart out to God. And so one of the laments, Psalm 22, which we'll deal with this month, is the most quoted in the New Testament except for Psalm 110. So very, uh, very much used And we know even that Jesus cried out the first verse of Psalm 22, a psalm of lament on the cross himself. Now, the structure of this psalm is really easy. Two verses, two verses, two verses, okay? Protest, verses 1 and 2. Petition, verses 3 and 4. Praise, verses 5 and 6. And you see the the pattern or the movement, the protest, the cry, the the uh, complaint, and then the petition, the request that flows from this, and then the final resolve and joy in laying hold of God's peace and His mercy and His loving kindness. There's this initial cry, how long, O Lord? It's kind of an umbrella statement, okay? How long will you forget me? How long 
Will you forget me completely? That's the idea here. Will you utterly, have you completely forgotten about me? Have you completely turned your back on me? How long? And this seems kind of introductory, kind of a title for the whole of the psalm. Uh, There are uh, ten more of these cries in the Psalms. It's a constant cry in the Psalms. And it's as though he says, now let me get down to details. Let me tell you what I'm talking about and how long. Let me spell it out for you, this poem of my pain, this exposition of my anguish, my pain in regard to you. How long will you hide yourself? My own personal pain taking counsel with my soul, sorrow in my heart, and then my enemies. And so it's God and it's self and it's enemies. It's theological, it's personal, it's social. All aspects of his life, he is laying out before God the complete uh, exposition of his pain. And the, the fact that he says it four times indicates the continued suffering, the repeat, being repeatedly slammed. He can't perceive any help from God, feels utterly forsaken by God. And this first statement of how long will you hide your face? To hide God, for God to hide his face is an indication throughout scripture of anger and alienation, his neglect, his judgment, his displeasure. It's like a man that's about to be uh, imprisoned or perhaps put to death and he's appealing to a prince or king and he's asking, save me, save me, rescue me. And suddenly the king turns his back on him and walks out the door and he knows he's gone because he's turned his back on me. He's not going to listen to me. He's not going to face me anymore. He's abandoned me. This is the feeling that he had. That God, you've utterly turned your back upon me and I'm left to be destroyed by my enemies. And so the request, of course, is shine your face. Face me. Literally in Psalm 69, when it says, turn to me, it it literally reads, face me. Face me, oh God. Look to me. See me. Notice me. Take, Take consideration what is going on. And so this four times uh, how long, how long, how long shows the extremity of his misery, that his strength is spent, that he's plunged into sorrow. And this complaint and accusation against God where it begins, that's one man has called this the nerve center of all lamentation is the accusation toward God. And that's because they appeal to him as the creator and Lord. They don't search for suffering, uh, for the cause of suffering in some other power that's hostile to God. But they look to God alone. This is in contrast to a lot of uh, modern theology in America where, no, no, God didn't have anything to do with this. God was hands off. This was Satan's work. This was, well, maybe so. Maybe particular things are the particular work of Satan, but... The, the psalmist would say, that being the case, God is the one who governs every single part of my life. So I'm asking him why. Get that? It's because they believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. And that creates the problem, you see. 
You can have a flight from reality in the modern church by saying God doesn't have anything to do with this or that tragedy, but that's a flight from reality, a flight to try to make life easier. Or to say God doesn't exist, there's another flight from reality. It's easier to contemplate rather than, here's a God in control of all things, and look what my life is, and I've got to face Him. I've got to find Him. I've got to figure out what's going on here. That's the reality of the Psalms. That's the reality of the, the lament. In Psalm 80, he talks about how you planted this vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. You planted this vineyard, and now you've torn its walls down in judgment. You know, it's like a guy who spends two years building this beautiful house and then one day you see him out there with this wrecking ball, he's just knocking it down. Like, are you crazy? That's the feeling of the psalmist in Psalm 80. I don't know what to do with you. I don't know how to think about you. You scare me to death. You don't, you don't seem to be acting consistent with your uh, character. What are you doing? might be asking, hey, tell me, where is that? Let me see what it was. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Yeah, but I'm not getting it. Right? I mean, he's to expect this from number six. It's the ironic blessing. And yet now he says, you've hidden your face from me. I don't sense your blessing. I don't sense your presence. I'm not experiencing your reality here. But you see, this presupposes God's presence. Why would you not, why would you even ask the question if you didn't believe He was there, right? Why would you even address God if you didn't think the answer is in you, the only answer in you, and the only solution is in you? You're all I have, you're all I could ever want. It's you that I must have. We can't make up this anemic, helpless God who can't do anything about what's happening or say, I don't believe in God who allows suffering. We have to encounter and grapple with the majesty of His sovereignty and His unlimited love, none of which we can fully understand. Are we going to grapple with Him or not? We had a vine by the river, the Coosa River in Gadsden, about three times bigger than the Trinity. So it was a pretty nice river. And we had this steep bank uh, close to the hospital that came down to the river's edge and there was a tree right at the uh, edge of the river and we had this huge rope that would swing you way out and drop. And the other neat thing you could do is climb up in this tree 30 feet and jump off but you had to have people standing down on the stumps so you wouldn't hit those so stupid (laughs) so stupid (laughs) but that's what we would do and always the challenge are you going to jump off you going to swing out and sometimes it was weird because i remember bob horton our bass player swung down to the water's edge and it just snapped him off and he just slapped into the water you know so are you going to try it again you're going to get up there. You're going to get on the vine. That's what it's like to love this God and be in relationship with this God. It's glorious. It's magnificent. It's thrilling. And it's, it feels dangerous. You know. So much easier to, act, to, to buy into a lesser God. But May says this about 
the laments. He will not, this, this psalmist, they will not separate God from any experience of life. We orient all of life to God. Even the worst parts of our life we orient to God. They're all in terms of our relationship to God. We refuse to see the present apart from God. We cannot imagine the future without this God. So you see, all of life, good, bad, ugly, we want to relate it to our God. We want to discover Him in it. We want to depend upon Him in the midst of it. And the complaint even gives evidence of the faith because I realize my welfare is in your hands. Why else would I direct my groaning to him? And sometimes for us, it's our lack of complaint, our lack of honesty and crying and openness and vulnerability and helplessness before God. That's the problem. That we're not pouring our hearts out to him. We're not unburdening ourselves. We're not telling him how we really feel, how deep the pain is, how long we've suffered. And you see, that's a denial of him. It's a denial of his goodness. It's a denial of his willingness to hear you, his willingness to listen to any and everything that you go through. It's a denial of the incarnation where Jesus came and bore our suffering and identifies completely with our pain. And so we show in this our desire for a relationship with Him. And in our crying, we're even saying, Lord, I'm losing my faith here. I, I'm losing you. It's, it's like you're fading from view. I'm losing you. I'm losing you. It's like what I heard a, a girl express uh, one time with, after she had she'd lost her mother and years had passed. And she said, I'm so distraught because I can't see her face anymore. I can't see her face. That's what the psalmist is saying. Oh, Lord, I'm losing your face. I'm losing you. So he's crying out in his distress. I just want to tell you this God is worth holding on to even when you're not experiencing his presence or you don't taste it. It doesn't look right. He is worth holding on to. And that's what the psalmist is doing. Though it shocks us to hear how long and to hear why, this is really their grappling with God. It's their honesty with God. It's their running after God, not having anything less than God. (laughs) He talks about his taking counsel in his soul, uh, torching yourself to try to figure out what to do, exhausted with a parade of suggestions, none of them lead anywhere. Plan after plan suggests itself, but their abandon is hopeless. As May says, anxiety tortures the mind with painful questions. You know, and we've experienced so much of that. No, this can't be happening. What's going on? Are you kidding me? Really? Unbelievable. Not this on top of everything else. No, no. What am I going to do? What can I possibly do? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my loved ones? How can I fix this? How can I get out of this? How can I get through this? Why did I do that to get me into this? Why did I do that? is tortured with the counsel of your soul. That's what he's talking about. The sorrow he speaks of 
this sorrow in his heart, a sorrow that seeps in your bones, deep and immovable, grafted into your heart with the weight of a boulder, feeling sometimes like you have the flu. All your emotions are dense and severe and sinking like dragging an anvil chained to your foot, and it never lets up and it never fades. It numbs everything. It deadens every experience and conversation. That's what he's talking about. Being utterly wiped out. And he speaks of his enemies. You know, the strongest and most frequent requests in, in the Psalms have to do with the enemies. Enemies. In fact, there are these two poles in the Psalms. God and my enemy. God and my enemy. <laughs> like all of life is caught up in that. And you get this in the Lord's Prayer as He prays, hallowed be your name. May your name be lifted up. May your kingdom come and your will be done. And then, Lord, protect me from my enemies. Protect me from guilt and judgment. Forgive my trespasses. Protect me against temptation. And deliver me from the evil one. That's what the Lord's Prayer is about. Oh, God, may I have all of you and embrace you. And Will you protect me against my enemies? Sometimes, of course, and many times in history in many places of the world, it's our physical enemies, like the Christians in North Korea who are being drugged out of their houses, searched for, looked for, if they do anything that indicates they're believers, to be killed. Or in Myanmar, Burma, interviews with many of these people who've come over and now are living in Midland, some are living here. We saw them uh, when we delivered the Thanksgiving meals. But they talk about how soldiers came and did the most terrible things to them because they lived in Christian states and the the government was uh, seeking them out. And uh, by the way, this could happen on Christmas Day while we are comfortably with our families and their families are being killed, decimated, tortured. There's a place for lament on Christmas Day. Oh, Lord, how long? How long? How long? But God's special office, as Calvin calls it, is to deliver his people from their enemies. His honor is at stake because they not only oppose his people, but they oppose him. And Calvin says, nothing will he bear with less than the cruel insolence of enemies. So what a wonderful way to appeal to God and your enemies that you face, spiritual or otherwise. Oh, Lord, help me in my suffering from my enemies. Let them not have the upper hand. Let Satan not have the upper hand in my life, oh, Lord. Deliver me from the evil one. Well, I'm not going to consider much else in Psalm except this that he pours his heart out, begins to pray, Lord, light up my eyes. This is the indication of restoring my wholeness, putting me back together again. It's basically a prayer for shalom and peace and, and well-being. Um, and again, the prayer against the enemies. And then this praise that comes seemingly out of nowhere. And the real key is he talks about steadfast love. That's God's covenant love. He looks either to one or the other, maybe both, of God's acts in his covenant love in the past toward Israel and then his personal covenant love toward the psalmist himself. 
and he thinks of the trust and the the uh, faithfulness of God's love, and he ha- enters into praise and joy in him. He even commits to this future praise, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. But here's, here's the interesting thing, people, about this. The reversal occurs while the lament is being prayed. Right? As he complains and pours out his heart in the midst of giving this full account of his trouble and laying out his requests there in this honesty and vulnerability and this humility and this openness and this recognition becomes recognition and discovery and insight and clarity and encounter with God. Again and again in the complaints, they step out of complaint into trust. And really, as Westerman points out, we have recorded in lament after lament the actual intervention of God as they are praying. He said there's no other way to explain this. That as they are pouring their hearts out to God, God meets them and reveals His love afresh to them, His promises afresh to them, His covenant afresh to them. God meets them in the midst of their prayer. And it's now put into concrete, put into stone so you can be taken through that process and have an expectancy that as you pour your heart out to God, it will happen. I give you one caveat, though. There are psalms like Psalm 88 that begins dark, ends as dark as it began. And you read it and you think, where's the rest of the psalm? It must have got cut off because it just ended the same way it began. But then you think, Well, that's a comforting thing because you may pray and this isn't like a formula, right? Pray this prayer and you're going to end up happy after you pray it. Now, you may end up as dark as you began. You pray again and maybe you end up as dark as you began. But you continue and you continue and you continue and God will bring you into His peace and He will convey to you His promises. And here, this man has not even been delivered yet. It's the hope of future deliverance. It's the hope of salvation to come that invades into the darkness of the present so that he experiences his steadfast love and is able to sing to the Lord. Uh, Gerald Wilson, in his uh, commentary, gave interesting application here. And it was very interesting to me because these are exactly what I actually do. So uh, it really resonated with me. And some of the things I've, I uh, counsel people when we're talking about these things. But he said that we can uh, unveil our heart to God sometimes by writing. And that's one thing I've done a lot in my life is just write it out, write how I feel, talk about it. Another way, for me, prayer is easier when I'm talking out loud keeps me from my mind wandering and I pace around my house, you know, up and down the hall praying. That's just the way I do it. It's good for me. And he talks about that audible conversation with God, getting it out, getting it open, telling him, actually hearing your voice tell God how lousy you feel. (laughs) And when you call to him, 
you call out, it's interesting, he called out Yahweh, Lord. That name means I am with you. I am committed to you. I am for you. All that I am is yours. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's all caught up in that one address, Lord, Lord, see. And for us, it's even sweeter, Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has died for me, the one who was raised for me, the one who intercedes before God for me, the one who's coming for me. Oh, Lord, how long, see. And we are, it's put into our mouth the word Father, right? Jesus has put that word in our mouth as well. Also, getting out of ourselves, giving to other people, just like Christ did. When all was lost in his immense pain, the abandonment of his disciples, the apparent uh, lack of any continued effect of his ministry in this world. And yet at that point on the cross, he was concerned about Mary and concerned about the thief on the cross, concerned to cry out that the people would be forgiven. And as people experience God's love through you, it opens you to His grace in your own life. And then in community, hearing people share their struggles and hearing songs of praise when your own heart is silent. And again, Christmas. You see, in general, the Jewish expectation was that when the Messiah came, it would all change and everything would be good from now on. But as we find out, when Messiah comes, it's a first coming, and then there's a second coming, as Brian referred to. And if anything, there's an increase in suffering, not a decrease in suffering for God's people. For Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And in his very invitation, he says, if you're going to come after me, take up your cross, the symbol of the world's hatred, because that's what's going to happen to you. And so the whole of the New Testament is marked by waiting. He says to the Thessalonians, you turn from God, from idols, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. That's just, you turn, you're serving God, and you're waiting. (laughs) That's what you do now. Same thing in Titus, that we're waiting for our blessed hope in the midst of all that God has done. So Peter says, set your hope completely on the grace that's coming. In fact, in Hebrews 9, it says, he's coming a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's like the definition of who we are. He's coming for the ones that are waiting for him. Well, that must really mark us as as vital to what we do. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, I'm going to receive this crown of righteousness which all will receive who've loved His appearing. See? We're like, it defines us as believers. And many passages more talk about this. And in Romans 8, it talks about our groaning in creation, groaning in agony of childbirth until He comes. Lament is fused into the New Testament. A groaning and eager waiting for the coming of Jesus. The first coming has made us taste His goodness. We want the complete coming so that even the saints made righteous, the spirits made righteous in heaven in Revelation 6.10 cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? 
Lament echoes in heaven. (laughs) Echoes in heaven. And so, in Revelation, he says, Surely I'm coming soon. And the response is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come, O Lord, at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. And so Christmas so wonderfully answers to all of these things. As Christ has entered into our suffering, He identifies and sympathizes with our suffering and what we go through. Like someone who has had shingles or a kidney stone or a knee replacement is able to come alongside of you and say, Oh, I know what you're going through. I've suffered with that same thing. Jesus has done that for us. And His action now defines our lives. If God gave His Son, He will freely give us all things. That act in Christ, thankfully now, defines our moment so that when we cry how long, all the more can we lay hold of His covenant love because we've seen it revealed in Christ Jesus. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't take all the suffering away. It doesn't take this cry away. But it does mean that our cry can be satisfied so readily because of the work of Christ Jesus. And isn't it wonderful that one of the promises in Revelation 22 is they will see His face. His face will never be hidden from us again. They will see His face always in favor, always smiling upon us, always pouring the richest blessing upon His people. That is our hope. That is our glory. Let us pray. O Lord, enable us to enter into true lament, but lament that issues again and again in hope and security and shalom. Cause us, Lord, to for your peace, your shalom, to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus so that as never before, our laments can be sweetened with the presence and promise of Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.